0: We had a really great time at the Mount Dora benefit dinner on Thursday night. It was a great turnout and just a really great time. It was over at Faulkner this year, which was way better than doing it downtown. I think we had a really great time. So for everybody who came out to that, I really appreciate it. It was it was wonderful. Um, we're continuing in our study this morning uh, about Jesus. Jesus works um, and the vocational study about how we can use Jesus' example of work in our own lives, the way we do things. And today we're continuing with uh, this in the, the vein of Jesus the Son. Um, and this is, this is a different... Uh, I think this is probably the, the most different kind of occupation compared to occupations we see today, at least in our culture. Um, Jesus is the Son... And today we might think, well, how is being a son an occupation? How is that a job? It seems counterintuitive to regard a position of birth as one that includes work, but the position of son in the Old and New Testament within Jewish society wasn't just a matter of birth, especially if you were the firstborn son, which Jesus was. Um, Jesus would have had many responsibilities as a son and as the son, the son of god himself the position it's, itself meant that he was bridled with enormous power and responsibility as well as a position of authority and meaning i got a new clicker today we're going to see if it works oh, it works yes yeah david wingard raises his arms triumphantly all right that's great so hopefully this new remote's going to keep us all on track all right so a little bit about the responsibility of being a son from scripture We'll talk about this in reference to uh, you know how Jesus being the Son really matters as an occupation, it's a job that he has that he had to do and he still has to do as the Son. Um, the first thing we must realize about being the, a firstborn Son is it carried with it huge and lifelong responsibilities. Under the law of Moses, as well as the examples of the patriarchs, the nation of Israel followed what was called what was known as the law of primogeniture. You may have heard of this before. The law basically affords the right of the firstborn male in the family to inherit his father's estate and its holdings, thus placing him in charge of the property and the family. Now, of course, if there was more than one son, they would split it in different ways. I won't get into all the different ways that it was split up, but um, the, the most of the share, you know, a, a larger portion of the share would go to the firstborn son. And with that, many other responsibilities went as well to take care of the family that was left. Um, In Jesus' day, this tradition still held true and was enforced across kingdoms and within families from the highest levels of society to the lowest. So it didn't matter what strata of society you were in, from a king down to the lowest, this same rule of of inheritance applied. In the Old Testament, we see this being used, um, although it seems to be ignored in favor of God's authority on most occasions, like with Isaac instead of Ishmael and Jacob instead of Esau. So there's some definite uh, places in the Old Testament where we see the law of primogeniture not being used. But a lot of times it is, for instance, with Aaron passing the priesthood on to his sons um, and David passing his kingdom on to Solomon. So there were uh, many times, and most of the time, they would observe this rule, this law of primogenitor. But there were occasions, especially special occasions, where God overruled it and said, "No, um, I'm looking at something different. I have a different plan than this human-made law of prim- primogenitor to uh, to use for passing passing things down." But the most significant purpose of passing uh, the passing of property from father to son was not so much about the property as it was about the family and the care thereof. In, the Old Testament, in Old Testament times, the world was a lawless and dangerous place, It was especially that way in the Old Testament. Women and children had very few rights and less protection unless they were part of a family group that would shelter and provide for them. So if you were outside of a family and you were a woman or a child, you didn't really have a lot of hope back then. Um, a woman and child who were cast out like Hagar and Ishmael would have most certainly died. In fact, uh, Hagar and Ishmael were on the verge of death when God intervened in Genesis chapter 21. So the family group was the most basic and common form of government and protection in the earliest days of civilization. The firstborn son would have been expected to take over the family management and government at an early age and begin the process of making important rules and judgments. But he would also be expected to ensure protection, medical care, spiritual leadership and teaching, education, and every other function that we look to uh, government for today. So this really, you know, becoming the, the, the son, the inheritor, the firstborn son, ha- having that position, it was, it was a huge, enormous responsibility, especially in a larger family. Uh, one that we, we don't really... See, we don't take into account as much today uh, as far as the responsibilities that, that people take on, or took on back then. These families would sometimes bloat to hundreds or even thousands of people, as in the case of Jacob, who had two wives, two concubines, and at least 13 children. Then his children married and began to have children... And that doesn't even include all the male and female servants that are under Jacob's care. If you add in thousands of sheep and you, have, you, you just have a logistical nightmare, you know, you're talking about a lot of responsibility. So you're taking care of potentially hundreds of people under your care and then thousands of animals and other pieces of property. That is a lot to take care of. So it was a really, really big responsibility. Abraham and Lot uh, even had to separate their families because they both grew too large and conflicts began to break out. Being a family head or firstborn son was not just a birth position, but amounted to being a head of state and a primary caregiver for many, many people and assets. So being a son was not just an important position, but a position that carried with it the the responsibility to, to, to... run an entire uh, city almost in some cases, as you look at with Jacob. Um, you've got a huge camp of people. And, of course, they migrated. So just imagine whenever it was time to pick up, to pull up stakes, literally, because you're taking up the, the tent stakes. And you got to take all that stuff and you got to put it away. I mean, imagine organizing all of that. <laughs> that is a huge undertaking. And all of that care uh, really fell ultimately to the leader of the group who was Jacob himself. And this is the kind of leader we're talking about, Jesus being the kind of son who takes on the responsibility for a family to, t- to take care of. Now, as we move through this, I want to first look at Jesus the son. I put lowercase, uh, it's no, no uh, disrespect to him, of course, as the son of God. This is speaking of him as an earthly son. Okay, that's why I put it lowercase son as an earthly son. And we'll talk about the uppercase son in a little bit as in reference to being the son of God. Jesus was born into the family of Joseph and Mary, the firstborn of his siblings. He had at least six siblings, as we see in Matthew chapter 13, verses 55 through 56. I'll read that now. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not his sisters with us? Where, uh, where then did this man get all these things? So we see here that Jesus was the firstborn in a family of eight, at least eight. And it appears, because it says sisters, so there's at least two sisters, could be more. Um, and it appears that Joseph, his supposed father had died, which meant Jesus was now the head of the family. One way or another, Joseph wasn't in the picture here. It doesn't mention him, and we don't see him anywhere else after this point. So G- Jesus ostensibly would have been meant to be the head of this family and take over some responsibilities in that way. Starting about the age of 12, Jesus would have been apprenticed to his father Joseph in the carpentry shop and would have learned every day until he became as skilled as Joseph in everything he did. Uh, Llewellyn and Blake, in their research, explain this is a kin-based profession. Sons work with their fathers. Sons undertake every aspect of the work and, like their fathers, make only a subsistence living from it. So, you know, they would go, they would do the work, they would get the money they need, they would go buy the food they need to take care of or buy, use the money they need to take care of. And generally, it was a day-to-day kind of profession. Thus, the selection of elements highlighted in the scene indicates that the target is related to the entailment of social identity, of which family connections and occupation are among some of the primary determinants. So this whole uh, thing about being a carpenter, you know, being Joseph's son, being apprentice as a carpenter, being the firstborn son, it all combines... Uh, socially and familially, into something that was, it was like almost a contract that you couldn't break. It was almost like an unbreakable contract as far as the social norms of the day were concerned. And if you went outside of those social norms, you were you were not well respected. Uh, people would point their finger at you and say, You're a deadbeat, or You abandoned somebody, or, you know, they're. It was a very, very important. Uh, uh, position to to undertake and to to to, to be in that in that day. Um, but we see a different idea when Jesus is twelve at the temple. In Luke chapter two verses forty one through fifty two, we see the story unfold with a twelve year old Jesus, twelve years old. Remember, traveling to Jerusalem for Passover. Then he accidentally gets left behind only to be discovered by Joseph and Mary in the temple. But his, Jesus' reaction to Mary's motherly exasperation is what makes the event so unusual. Didn't you know I must be in my father's house? He asks. Some versions say, didn't you know I must be about my father's business? Either way, Jesus is making a very controversial statement regarding his family and his responsibilities in it. His father's business, as far as Joseph and Mary were concerned, was to grow up to be a carpenter. But Jesus was already on the way to another type of business as the Son. So Jesus had an understanding at this point in his life, at the age of 12 years old, about who he was and who he was supposed to grow up to be. When he talks about being about his father's business... Again, that was a very controversial statement because as far as Joseph and Mary were concerned, look, son, you're the firstborn son. Your father's business is carpentry. This is what you're supposed to be doing. This is the person you're supposed to follow after. Jesus knew better. He knew more. Potentially, but I, I, I want to... I let's look at something. I, I want to I address that because that's a good point that people have brought up before, and I think that it's one that we need to look at. I think if you look over at Luke chapter 2, verses 33 through 35, we get a clue about that particular statement. Man, we're going to look at some more in this lesson that kind of show that, you know, oh, well, wouldn't Mary know that? Wouldn't Mary understand it? I mean, a, a, an angel visitor, for goodness sake, right? You know, we would, uh, we, we would assume that, oh, well, you know, Mary would know that. Well, let's I think I think we need to, to to first of all consider that sometimes you know we think with our head and sometimes we think with our heart, okay. And over in uh, Luke chapter two verses thirty three through thirty five, I think we see a little inkling of what is going on here. It says, "And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him." Okay, all right. This is talking about Jesus. Uh, Simeon and Anna were there, and they were talking about Jesus, and they were marveling about what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And this is the part that gets me, and I think that points toward the question you're asking, George. And it says, And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And the reason that I bring that up, that's kind of, it sounds a little cryptic when you first look at it and you first consider it. Um, some people think whenever they read that uh, passage and they read that verse, oh, well, it's talking about the sword. You know, whenever she's at the crucifixion and she's there and she sees the, the Roman soldier pierce the side of Jesus, it's not a sword, it's a, it's a spear. But this actually is a reference about Faith. It's not a reference about the crucifixion. It's a reference about faith. It's a reference about coming to faith in Jesus Christ. The point here is is that Mary wasn't a special human being. Yes, she bore the Son of God. She was special in that particular way. But just because she gave birth to Jesus doesn't mean she was automatically a faithful Christian. Would everybody agree with me on that? Just by virtue of giving birth to Jesus, was she automatically a faithful Christian? No. Did she have to come to faith in Jesus just like everyone else? Absolutely. So it stands to reason that at points like this, you know, where where Mary and Joseph, you know, they're looking at Jesus. Yeah, maybe a, an angel visited them. Maybe all these things. I, mean, I know they happened. I'm not saying maybe they did. They definitely happened. But... That doesn't mean that they didn't have doubts. It doesn't mean that they automatically had faith. They had to learn faith in Christ just like you and I have had to learn faith in Christ. Right. And that's part of the growth process and I think what grows out of what he's talking about when he was 12 years old is something they didn't understand. They didn't grasp because they had no framework of reference to understand it. And I think that's why... You know, that's why I'm pointing to this right here, is because they had to come to faith in in him, their own their own son, so to speak, just the way we have to come to faith in him. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, again, it's, you know, I think it really points to her having to come to faith in Christ. And I, I think, you know, ultimately we have to, we have to consider that as the whole fact and all of this, not, not just the occurrences because I've had many wonderful things happen to me in my life and I know they're because of God, but I still have to struggle, you know, and all of us still have to struggle with our faith. And we, you know, all have to come to a belief in him and a faith in him that has to be nurtured and so on and so forth. So I think that's what it points to. And there's some more in this lesson that I think will will help as well, but I think that to me is a key passage in the understanding of maybe her misunderstanding of some things and Joseph's misunderstanding by relationship. So all right. So if we move on a little bit further in this, um uh This event, as a 12-year-old, perhaps stuck with Mary for a while. In verse 51, Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. And again, this is a a difference between heart and head thinking, I think. Okay, Jim. Uh, Right, earthly king. Okay right, so there were some there were some emotional things going on in that whole uh this whole scene at the temple, uh, aside from the fact that they may have misunderstood from an earthly perspective what he means by being about his father 's business, so those things all relate to it as well, and I think that's not reading into it; it just makes sense um, so she was at least thinking about what Jesus said and did at this, at this point, uh, although perhaps using her heart more than her mind to understand them. But later we see an event that obscures this understanding a bit. And this is kind of where I was getting to a minute ago. So we, if you look in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 21, we see Jesus returning home to Nazareth from where he had been staying in Capernaum. So he had left home. He had gone to stay in Capernaum. All right which to the people around him, that would have seemed pretty strange, being that he was the firstborn son. But it, here in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 21, it says, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. Too many people around him to even be able to eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He's out of his mind. So his family's thinking, He's gone crazy. Jesus has gone crazy. He has left the reservation. He's out of his mind. Now, why did Jesus' family think he was crazy? Was he doing anything at all that would make them think so? Yeah, yeah, he was. Now, again, I'm not criticizing Jesus. There's a reason Jesus is doing all this, so don't think that I'm criticizing Jesus. I'm just trying to get you to see from the perspective of the people of the day why they misunderstood Him. And then we're going to look at why we, we can't understand Him. Alright, so yeah, he was. there's a reason why they thought He was crazy. Jesus was the firstborn son, trained since He was 12 years old to be a master carpenter. He had at least six younger siblings, at least two of whom were women and a mother who would need protection. He was supposed to be in Nazareth working on furniture or in construction, bringing home the proverbial bacon, not gallivanting around the countryside preaching. So, of course, they think he's lost his mind. Of course, they think he's crazy. He has basically done the opposite of everything they think he should be doing. But, of course, Jesus knew something that they didn't. He understood some things that they didn't understand. So I think that kind of goes back to the question George was asking a minute ago. Okay. Yeah, Mary had a virgin birth, uh, an angel of God appeared to her and talked to her. But then in this passage we see him going off and doing his ministry, and what's the first thing his mother, who had these things happen to her, what's the first thing she thinks? He has lost his mind. My son has lost his mind. When he started his business, he said whatever he tells you to do, you do that. But even later on, when he was about to go to Jerusalem, his brother still did not believe in him. Oh, sure. Absolutely. And it, and it could be. It could be more targeted toward the, uh, the siblings as well. I think that uh, I would just, I guess I would say that the fact that she was there and that she was with them at the same time, maybe kind of indicates that, okay, his mother... I mean, the passage says that his mother and his siblings went out to get him because they... I would say that she might be included in that. But in any case, either way you look at it, we see this misunderstanding of Jesus. Whether you want to apply it just to Mary herself or to the people all around, the culture itself, we see a, a definite misunderstanding of what Jesus was trying to do and who he was. Yeah, George. Yeah, it says. Well, it depends on the translation, I imagine. And it says in this one in the ESV. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. So, I mean, either way you look at it, his own people. Generally, I think in Scripture it applies to his family. But, mm-hmm. well, when it says his family, it could include. It could include Mary. I, I'm, I don't want to get wrapped around the axle of Mary. I, I think that, that's not really the point. Yeah. Or, yeah, or even Joseph. That's not really the point. The point is the people of his day, the people around him, including his family, and you can include Mary in that if you want to, it, it doesn't really matter, misunderstood who he was and what he was doing. They would have seen him as someone who was abandoning his family and going and doing something he wasn't supposed to do. So obviously his family was coming out saying He's crazy. What I'm trying to say is, why did they think he was crazy? Because he wasn't doing what he was, quote-unquote, supposed to do. His occupation, okay? Remember, these lessons are all about occupation. So as far as they were concerned, he wasn't keeping to the occupation he was supposed to keep to. He wasn't doing what he was supposed to do as far as that society was concerned. But Jesus knew something greater than that. Jesus operated on a level spiritually that they didn't operate on. So, I mean, yeah, maybe, maybe Mary and Joseph did. I think it would be a mistake to think that they were special above everyone else. Yeah, they had seen and known things that we see and know too, but so did all the people in the Old Testament. And they uh, again and again rejected God and rejected faith and didn't understand things. So, I mean, I don't think we can go either way with that. <laughs> um, it would be a problem either way. She pondered them in her heart. She may not, I don't know, I'm sure she did not fully understand in this time, even though she knew those. In fact, to her, they're not being special in the sense that they had to come to believe in the same way we do. Yes. They are not. But I think we don't get near the credit she's due. Sure. Right. Mary was chosen bear his Yes, that's, that's absolutely right, And I have no qualms with that at all. I think that it's important to understand that, yes, they were a special couple who were chosen by God to do a special thing. Just like the you know people we see throughout the Bible who were chosen. I mean, Paul was very special. He was chosen by God for a special ministry. Today, we're special in our own different ways because we're chosen by God to do special things as well. The point I'm trying to get to is the fact that people, again, all around them, misunderstood, didn't grasp who Jesus was, what he was trying to get to from a social and cultural perspective. And Jesus had to go about it in a way to show them, hey... This is who I am. I'm the son of God. I'm not just the son of Mary and Joseph. So, I guess everybody can get on board with that. <laughs> so, and I don't want to, you know, I don't, uh, some people have very, very strong feelings about who, who Mary and Joseph are. And, and they want, you know, they don't, they don't want, I'm not trying to talk bad about them. I'm just trying to say, let's look at it from a, let's back up a little bit and let's look at it from a perspective of, okay, these people are people. They're human beings like you and me. They've given, been given a very special place uh, and a very special mission by God. But, you know, they're people like you and me, and they have misunderstandings and misapprehensions just like we do. So it's important to kind of look at it in that perspective, but also the people around him. So now let's move on to Jesus, the Son. And I put capital S for this one, talking about his... And this is where we change gears to show, okay... Jesus is operating and thinking on a different plane than the world and and society around him. While society, the people around him, even members of his family apparently, consider him to possibly be abdicating his position as the firstborn son of that family, he knows better. He understands that he's the firstborn son above firstborn sons. He is the son of sons, just like he's the king of kings, lord of lords, and so on and so forth. That Jesus, the firstborn son, capital son, uh, he's the fir- he is the firstborn son, but not in the way Joseph and Mary thought, potentially. As far as Jesus was concerned, he was apprenticed to his father, capital F father, not Joseph. This meant that from the age of 12, Jesus might have been learning carpentry, but his heart was in living the life God And the Father lives. This perfect life was one so unlike any life any person had seen before that it took the world and society and stood them on their heads. Many times the kingdom of heaven is referred to as an upside-down kingdom because Jesus' teachings, especially uh, things like, so the last will be first and the first will be last, as we see in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 16. So he's turning everything upside down. He's making everything... Different. Everything new. Jesus took the conventional wisdom of the time and completely dismantled and shifted it. This act as the firstborn made every bit of sense from the Father's perspective. So taking and turning all this upside down, making it all new, made sense in the reference of a spiritual kingdom. But there was something else that made very little to no sense to everyone around him. The firstborn son not only lived as a poor wanderer, but used no weapon, no weapons, and told his closest followers that he was going to be crucified. In Matthew twenty-six two, he says, "You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified." How did this play into being the firstborn? Why would the Messiah, who had been prophesied for thousands of years, be hung on a cross? I think Colossians chapter one verse 18 gives us a clear explanation. It says, "And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that everything, in everything, he might be preeminent." So Jesus is the firstborn, but he's the firstborn in a different kind of way. He's firstborn in many different ways, but in a special kind of way, He's the firstborn from the dead that in everything He might be preeminent. It was not the position of birth that made Jesus the firstborn, nor was it the fact that He is God's Son. It's the fact that His rebirth gives hope to you and me. And it's through this birthright that we can have a place in His family. You see, it's, it's not about Jesus again. He's operating on a different plane, a spiritual plane. He's not... The, the kind of firstborn that the people around him thought he was supposed to be. He is the firstborn of the, from the dead. He's that kind of firstborn. And that's really what makes him significant to you and me. I mean, he could be a firstborn child, you know, for you know, the, the, the king of the day. And that won't really matter to us unless he's the firstborn from the dead. Unless he is the first of the new resurrection. And that's what gives hope to you and me. In Revelation, uh, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5 finishes this thought. It says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead so that we, you and I, can have that same inheritance. If he is not firstborn of the dead... From from the dead. If he is not risen, if he is not that firstborn, then we don't have that promise. We don't have that inheritance. But because he is, we do. Finally, Jesus' firstbornness is manifested in Colossians chapter one, verses fifteen through seventeen. Says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Jesus not only saved the world and obtained an inheritance for us, He is the inheritance, the firstborn of creation, holding all things together for us, His new creation. We are His new creation, and He is our inheritance. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Jesus is our portion. He is our inheritance. He is the one who gives us, uh, makes us firstborn sons as well, who makes us uh, sons of Him, sons of God. Jesus' Sonship has huge meaning. Huge meaning for us as Christians. Not only because He is our High Priest, firstborn of the dead and firstborn of creation, but because in Him we have been transformed into something new. In Galatians 4, chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Something uh, I definitely don't want to get wrapped around the axle about, is the whole idea of being a son. Just because you're female doesn't mean you can't be a son. <laughs> you understand that. I know. I, I know how I hope you do anyway. Um, sonship refers not to being a male. It, re- it refers to having an inheritance. Okay, That's why that term is used over and over again when it talks about being a son of God. Because as a son of God, and everyone in here, I believe, is a son of God... Um, you receive an inheritance. It's, it's a quote-unquote legal, legal term that ensures that you know that you receive an inheritance, that everyone receives an inheritance if they're in Christ. We all claim sonship if we are in Christ. And if this is so, what kind of responsibility and blessing do we have? Not only do we have the work of a son in the church... But we have the eternal blessing of being reborn from the dead into a new creation as heirs to the promise forever. So we as sons have an inheritance and a responsibility. And we've and, and all throughout this, the lesson, what I've been trying to get to, I know sometimes my, my train of thought might not match everyone else's, but what I've been trying to get to is going from, okay, in the Old Testament, this is how sonship looks. And that's why people in society misunderstood Jesus in that day, because they were looking at how sonship looked from the Old Testament perspective. Now you and I are given a new look at what sonship looks like. We're given this brand new transformed look at what sonship looks like. But you know what? In a lot of ways, it's very similar to the way it was in the Old Testament. From the perspective of understanding that we have a responsibility. We have a blessing and a responsibility. We have an inheritance. We have the greatest inheritance because we are firstborn sons. We are sons of God. But we also have a great responsibility because, you know what? We have a family now. And as a family of Christians, part of the responsibility is, is to take care of that family, isn't it? Part of that responsibility is to shepherd that family, to love that family, to organize that family, to, to lead that family. We all have the responsibility if we're sons of God, don't we? So that's, that's really the, the progression you know, the progression from, from the way God set it up way over here in, in, in the four times in the Old Testament, all the way through the New Testament where Jesus takes that concept and He transforms it and He makes it new. And you and I have the advantage of that newness today and we can see it for ourselves. I hope we can see it for ourselves and use it in our daily walk and use it in the way that we treat each other and love each other and the way that we see our responsibility as Christians as sons of God. All right. So, a little bit on work application. <clears throat> and we'll probably be done for today because I'm getting pretty close here. Do we take our inheritance seriously? Do we take our Christian our our sonship, our inheritance as Christians as sons seriously? That we need to ask ourselves that question. Jesus shows us how to use what we've been given as heirs of the kingdom by how He shares His inheritance. His last will and testament is in effect now. We have been adopted as sons and have what He has left us in His will and must share it with other people. Do we take care... Of our human family. Jesus, as son and capital son, lowercase son and capital son, takes care of every member of his family. He brings love, care, feeding, and sacrifice to those he loves. The spiritual care and feeding he delivers to us is a mirror we can use to reflect his love to everyone around us. And our work We are to be protectors, honest, and kind. At every level, we as sons represent the best of Jesus to the world. So what are we doing with our inheritance? Are we squandering our inheritance? Are we using our inheritance to glorify Him? Are we taking our inheritance to the world and sharing it with them? Because that's where the inheritance is going to grow. That's where the inheritance is going to become richer and richer and richer and more and more beautiful and more and more important to everyone around us is if we share it in that way. I'm going to make one last statement, one last, one last little note about the reference of, of Jesus being a son, as, at least as an earthly son. Because I think Ms. Nell and, and George both make a really good point about him being an earthly son and what a great earthly son he was and how important this was, it had to have been, to Mary, especially as she stood at the foot of the cross. You remember what Jesus said to John. We all know what he said to John, don't we? Yeah. He says, son, look at your mother. Tells John that. John, his, his disciple. He says, son, look at your mother. He tells Mary, mother, look at your son. Can you... I, I, I would love to have seen the look in their eyes when they looked at each other after jesus said that when jesus did that he was he was taking care of his mom you know that was one of the last things he did i don't think we could ever 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 say that he didn't live up to being the best son ever and that of course wasn't the point of this lesson i wasn't trying to get at anything about jesus not being a good son that's definitely not the point as an earthly son he outshone anybody he's the best um, but I, th- I think even higher and better and greater than that as God's son he, he outshone that even, even that beautiful amazing special act of, of telling of taking care of his mom with his last breaths because in his sacrifice and in his love for us and in, in the inheritance that he gives to us he's taking care of the world He's taking care of the world, and that is uh, more than we could ever hope for, more than we could ever ask for, and a blessing that I hope that we can all leave here appreciating it today. So just a few questions to think about, and you know, we'll talk about them a little bit as we end up here because we're almost done. We've just got a few more minutes left. As a son of God, we're sons of God. As a son of God, how do you show your sonship in your everyday life? How do you live out being a son of God in your everyday life? So a lot of it is, is our, our walk with Christ, our, our example to, uh, before the world as, as sons of God. Okay, of course, yeah, of course, of course, bringing the gospel, you know, that's all part of it. Um, you know, living out the gospel and teaching the gospel, you know, combining all that together in, in our walk with Christ. Okay, so being a son, you know, has a lot to do with that inheritance that we talked about, Right. Because the gospel, and the, the, you know, eternal life, the gospel, all those things, go, uh, freedom from sin, all those things uh, go along with that inheritance. And if we're looking at the world and, and, and loving other human beings, we want them to have that inheritance too, right? Okay, so now this is kind of a, a more obvious question, I guess, but what is your inheritance and how do you share it with others? What's, what's your inheritance? What have you inherited and how do you share that? And Brother Gene. Okay. Each one preparing the way for the next. Can you expound upon that a little bit? Okay, great. So so the inheritance that we're referring to, it's the gifts that Christ brought in Himself, so to speak, and then left for us to carry on to other people. Is that kind of what that talks about, what you're meaning by taking it on to the next generation and so on and so forth? Okay. So yeah, Jesus Himself, again... Jesus is our inheritance, right? Christ himself is, is the inheritance. Um, and it's through, through that inheritance that we are able to extend that inheritance on to others who, who haven't inherited him yet. Um, and not just speaking to, to, of, of our own children, but the world at large. Okay, finally, let's uh, at work, home, and in your church family, how do you exemplify your sonship in the way you interact with and treat other people? Okay, we won't answer that one. (laughs) No, I I think, you know, it's just uh, we've already kind of answered it, and I appreciate y'all's attention so much. And uh, Actually, next week we won't have class. I think Melvin will be teaching in here. So we're just going to skip a lesson, and we'll finish up the last two lessons the next two weeks after that. Thanks so much. Have a great week.